Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Money, powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. In this episode of the podcast, Giovanni's guest today is Oren Aloni Charis, CEO and Managing Partner at Global Health Impact Fund. In this episode, Giovanni and Oren discuss his journey from being a doctor to an investor, what a micro VC is, the value of physician investors as an early stage startup, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Oren Aloni Charis. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion, talking about the future So I'd like to say thank you for having Dr. Oren Aloni Charas on today's podcast, MedTech Money, where we are demystifying raising capital. And I wanted to set the stage before we jump into Dr. Oren Aloni Charas's background and also what the Global Health Impact Fund is all about. And so the reason why we're here is because I've talked to thousands of medtech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in medtech. And so I thought my goal here is to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs and investors like yourself so that we can help those who can benefit from the information and for generations of professionals and entrepreneurs to come. And so what I imagine this audience who's listening to this podcast will be is a mixture of experts, novices, those who have raised capital and been there and done that before. But realistically, I wanted to extract your stories and insights and advice so we can share with what I imagine is the first time founder or CEO and has no clue what lies ahead of them on their journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place would be is to start learning from experienced professionals like yourself. So why Dr. Oren Aloni Charas is here with us today is because I wanted to learn not only about your background, but also what starting a venture capital firm feels like, acts like, and what happens in that first year and a half or so, and we'll get into it. And then also specifically, very early stage venture capital firms, obviously a differentiator between an angel group, um, but also not a massive late stage venture capital firm either. So I want to dig into those nuances. And before we get into that, I wanted to start with two open-ended questions to get your perspective and set the stage for your background and then jump into who you are. So my first question is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or is there anything that I'm missing? Are those your two questions? Yep, that's my that's my first oh, question. question. Okay, well, first, thank you. Um, sorry, uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. That's a great question, um, but it's it's fun to be here, Giovanni. Thanks for hosting me today. Absolutely. The the are people and money the lifeblood? Well, certainly you have to have good people, and there's no question that 
unfortunately, you got to have money. Um, but I would add inspiration to it. I mean, I guess that's part of people, but there's something special about the space that drives people where the rewards are very long-term, right? You don't start a company and, you know, become Jeff Bezos, right? It takes years and years and years and luck and, you know, just a lot of lightning striking at the right place. So there's more to it, but yeah, I mean, you need to have good people and you need to have capital. So thank you for the validation. I certainly agree with you. And obviously you can't have money without the people. And then also the people and the money lead to hopefully a great technology that possibly will go IPO or get it acquired. Um, but that leads to my second question, which is more about specific to you and you building your career. Um, given where you are now, the founder of the Global Health Impact Fund, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech life science entrepreneur investor, would you do it all over again or why not? Or what would you do differently? Wow. Yeah, no, I would absolutely. I, I think the real answer is, would you do it sooner? Um, we've talked about this offline, but my career started in medicine. I'm an anesthesiologist by training and I've worked for 25 years clinically. And that's the, that's the fundamental um, the passion I have for this space really comes from that. So I was able to develop that over many, many years of taking care of people. So I guess the only thing I would have done was maybe try to do this sooner, but I didn't want to give up my career in medicine. And that career was very rewarding personally, just to be a doctor. It's a, it's a huge gift, but also rewarding with respect to how I now, you know, behave as a venture capitalist, because I feel like I understand the ecosystem in which my entrepreneurs have to work in. And that gives me insight that uh, most people don't have. And additionally, I was able to uh, build a network of physicians that I can now rely on. So one of the strategic differentiators of my fund is that we, and, and I say we, but really I'm, I'm not the original founder. My colleague, Gary Goldman, who's also an anesthesiologist, uh, was the progenitor of the fund. I joined it one year into its inception, but have helped grow it quite a bit. Um, and I have two other, uh, three other partners, excuse me, Dave Goldman, Bob Sweeney, and Chris Kager. Chris is also a doctor. He's a neurosurgeon. And what we've done is we've built a venture fund that is supported by a large network of physicians who are experts and they're in hospitals all across the country. And it's provided us with, you know, deal flow sourcing and due diligence support. And then most importantly, in my mind is the, um, support of companies that we've invested in. And there are so many things an organized group of physicians can do for early stage startups and, you know, what we've qualified them and vetted them and we work with them. So it adds really a lot of value. And just, you know, to name a couple of examples of things that we've done, obviously we can make introductions to hospitals. One of our limited partners created a relationship between one of the medical societies and one of our portfolio companies. Another one of our limited partners helped us engineer pilot studies for one of our companies, you know, there are all these ways that we can get involved. And so that's been really great. So I would say to answer your question, 
the only thing I would have done differently would be to more assertively get involved in this space sooner. I, you know, I regret that I, I didn't know what the avenues were earlier. So I, whenever I ask that question, I, I can't remember anyone saying they regret what they've done, but I do actually hear that often where they love what they do being in this space and they only wish they could have done it sooner. So I love that response. I do. Um, so without further ado, if you can elaborate a little bit more on what you were already saying, who is Dr. Oren Aloni Charas? Tell us a little bit about your background of which you've already started to allude to. Yeah. How did you get to this point with I'll abbreviate it moving forward, the Global Health Impact Fund, GHIF. And then once we stop at who you are, delve into what the GHIF actually is and some of those um, focal points of what you guys do. Terrific. Thanks, Giovanni. So, you know, I'll try to be brief, uh, but I was born in New York, raised on the East Coast, went to school on the East Coast and um, went to medical school and trained in anesthesia in New York City. And then when I was living in New York City, I decided that I also wanted to have an MBA. So I went back, I went to Columbia uh, and got that. And when I was done with my MBA in 2001, I moved to San Francisco to take a, a new job at a hospital here in San Francisco and worked there until recently retiring from practice. In the meantime, having done my MBA, I learned about venture capital and just was taken by it. I thought, what an interesting, I mean, it's really, the, it's an imagination ecosystem, really, right, where you, you envision the future. And I wanted to know how I could be a part of it and what, what could I contribute? Now, I, I didn't see myself, at least at the time, you know, stopping what I'm doing and starting a company that didn't resonate with me. I didn't know. It's like, I want to write a novel, but I don't know what to write about, you know? So I was looking into a way of becoming a part of venture from the capital side and the management side. And after many years of being in practice and talking to people in Silicon Valley, where venture seems to be in the water, um, I met a company called AngelMD, which was an early stage startup that was putting together networks of doctors to invest in early stage healthcare startups. And that resonated with me. So I joined the team as one of the early employees and I was able to put together a formal process of evaluating companies and build networks of startups. And most importantly, I guess, build networks of physicians that could help us understand and then fund the startups. And we funded, um, when I was there, close to $10 million worth of companies um, of the 20 or so companies that I ended up participating in the investments, only two or three of them have closed. And that's since 2016. And the rest of them have grown, uh, gained value, met milestones. And to me, that made me realize that a really conscientious approach coming from a clinical standpoint makes sense. And Giovanni, I'm sure you've said this before in your podcast, and I know you know this, but statistically, the number that gets quoted is that one in 10 startups in the early stage succeed, right? Which means nine out of 10 fail. And by fail, we mean don't exit and return capital. Well, that's, a, that's really terrible. That's worse than baseball. And so if you can move the needle to just have two in 10 succeed, right? It seems really the low bar to me. Then double terms of your, of your fund. Right. So it's just math. It's like moneyballing, you know, venture. 
And here I am looking at the system we put in place and only 10% of the companies have failed in the early portfolio. <clears throat> now, of course, none of them have exited yet because it hasn't been long enough. So I don't know that I would necessarily, you know, patent it and, you know, sell it for billions of dollars. But the reality is, is that having a conscientious approach clearly can add value. And if we can just move the needle a little bit, we can create value. If we can move the needle a lot, we create crazy value. Um, and, and I also want to say that value of course, is capital, it's money, it's return on investment. But in this particular case, and in many cases in venture, value is also impact because we're investing in companies that make a difference in people's lives and in their health. And so if these companies succeed, we will have contributed in some way to that success and changing the face of healthcare. And that's actually what really drives me. So I went to AngelMD, I did that work. I ended up leaving AngelMD and joining another company called Red Crow, which was local to me. And at Red Crow, uh, again, we were building networks and trying to help support early stage companies. And I was able to partner with the Cleveland Clinic and also with NASDAQ. I had a, a show that we filmed at NASDAQ, which was really fun. And then finally, my friend Gary, Dr. Goldman, who I'd known because he interviewed me for a job in 2001 when I was coming out to San Francisco. Um, so I'd known him for many years and he had become an informaticist and was very involved with the epic uh, rollout in Sutter. Um, he had started a fund called the Global Health Impact Fund and he wanted me to join. And, you know, we had been in touch now for a little while talking about startups and entrepreneurship and innovation and networks. And he was able to convince me to come join the fund that had all of the colleagues I mentioned earlier, Dave, Chris, Bob, and of course, Gary. And so that just seemed like a great opportunity. And so I joined the fund over a year ago and we're just about closing our first fund. We've raised almost $10 million and we're opening our second fund, which is institutional. Our first fund was targeting doctors. Actually it was targeting like people who could afford lower minimums, but were felt excluded from venture, but specifically doctors, because that's who our network was. And about 80% of our limited partners are doctors. And strategically, that's been great because, again, we've built this network, not just a, a bigger network of people who like innovation, but a smaller network, a core network of folks that are actually invested and, and will benefit from any support that they indirectly, obviously, from any support that they can give a company, um, you know, because it helps the fund they've invested. So now we're opening our next fund and we're we have a higher target of $20 million dollars and um, higher minimums. So it's gonna, I know, exclude some doctors and other professionals, but because of the cap table limitations, if you want a higher number, you have to have higher minimums. So our goal is to get this one started and then create a parallel fund for doctors with lower minimums and anybody else who's accredited, of course, um, and uh, continue to bring them in because it revitalizes the network to have more and more doctors be a part of it. And to be honest, they want to be a part of it. Our core thesis is that doctors should have, and clinicians, I, I shouldn't be specific to doctors, nurses, chiropractors, dentists, all of them should have a seat at the table because you know we're the scientists. We understand the science as well as the entrepreneurs and better than most people. We're also the practitioners and the, you know, we're the customers of these products. We understand the product market fit. We understand the patient's journey and the hospital journey and all of these things. And they all make a difference. I can't tell you how many times I'll give you a classic example as an anesthesiologist. 
I've seen hospitals build operating rooms and not ask anesthesiologists about the floor plan and how things should look. And they just build them because they think they should, they know what to do. And you get into the room and, and you look at it one look after it's been set up and you say, this setup is not safe for a patient. Like I can't go from here to over here in order to resuscitate my patient without jumping over this machine and that machine. And it just doesn't work. We have to reconfigure the room and say, well, we can, it's too expensive. You'll just have to figure it out. So, okay, but it's not, it's not ideal. And had they included us when they did the planning, they would have had that information. They could have just adjusted. Doctors should be a part of these conversations early. The good businesses will be better faster and the bad businesses will learn quickly that they shouldn't be in business and move on to another project that will be more successful. So I had a, a series of questions, but I'm going to deviate yeah. because you brought up a couple topics that I wanted to flesh out further. So um, you received an MD degree and then you went and got your MBA. Yeah. And I've met numerous MDs who received MBAs and it's this lethal combination of being an MD, but also having that business awareness. And I want to throw that, that stereotype back at you where sometimes medical physicians and assumptively who don't get the MBA um, have that stereotype wrapped around them that they're not necessarily great business men or women. And so when you have that MD and MBA, you, you almost radiate a different persona, right? You still have that clinical and scientific background, but you also have that business and social awareness that allows you to be very outward facing from a business perspective. So I think it's really interesting that you've developed this GHIF um, fund that is really focused on the physician or clinician, like you mentioned, and what's the added benefit and, and you were giving that already, but I wanted to go a little bit deeper on that. What's the added benefit of having a fund that's solely based on physicians? And are all of them MDs with MBAs? Or is it everyone, is it MDs who can only give certain clinical insights, but you know, business is not really their thing, but they're happy to be a part of it and contribute when they can and leave the other MBA slash business aspects to the others who want to take charge of that. Just give flush that out of that whole physician clinician focus of your fund. Yeah, that's a really interesting sausage making question. So, so the first thing I'll say is that, yeah, it's true. I mean, doctors have a reputation for not being terrific business people. I don't think that that's entirely fair, but it's not entirely unfair as well as a generalization. Um, but, you know, people are, feel free to underestimate me if you want, but I, I feel like I get it, you know, at least on, on a pretty deep level. And you know, if you spend enough time and you, I'll tell you what doctors are really good at. Doctors are really good at learning. I mean, we spend so much of our lives learning and taking in massive amounts of information. And I would probably argue that any doctor who spends time learning about business will learn business. So it's more a matter of how they um, allocate their time rather than what their skill set are, skill sets are. Um, in terms of the way the fund works, first, it's not exclusively to doctors. It's just that happens to be who our network is primarily. So it's mostly doctors. But we, I would welcome any accredited investor into the fund um, and, uh, you know, let them be a part of it. And, you know, when I look at companies and when our fund looks at companies, there's really three levels of due diligence that we have to do. Um, the first level in my mind, I envision it like a pyramid and the first level is clinical uh, information. And we're looking for innovations, not iterations, not me too products. We're looking for um, 
products that make a difference that are unique and that have, you know, of course, the usual market share, but it has to make sense. It has to have a good product market fit. It, there has to be a patient need. It has to solve a real problem. So there, there are a lot of clinical issues. And then beyond that, who are the key opinion leaders affiliated with the company? Um, what are the hospital affiliations? What do the clinical trials look like? These are all things that doctors and scientists understand that a lot of people don't. So just if, if that's the only thing you can contribute to my fund as a, as a partner or advisor, because you don't have to be an investor, you can just be an advisor as well, um, then that's still huge. And the other thing is we're not going to one specific person. You know, I'm not calling my uncle Cy and saying, hey, you know, what do you think about this company? He says, well, I'm a cardiologist. You say, well, but this is an orthopedic screw. Give me your opinion. Like when we have a cardiology company, we go to cardiologists. We have a large enough network that I can go to multiple cardiologists and in multiple institutions to avoid the institutional biases that, that we see. And get their feedback. And then we can aggregate that feedback into something digestible to help us decide whether or not to move forward. Um, so I think that's, that's really valuable. If they can or want to get involved and look at some of the business aspects, that's great. And sometimes they want to get involved more to learn because they're interested in learning. And sometimes they want to get involved to um, because they can contribute. And at the end of the day, the fund is the fund and it's a managed investment. And the, the people, you know, in that circle right outside of the fund, the LPs and advisors, they're not responsible. I mean, that's literally what a limited partnership means, right? So I have to make sure and my colleagues on the fund have to make sure the work gets done. So where they can help, they help. And where they can't help, then we do it. And so either way, the, the complete picture gets painted. And they like that. Um, because some of the doctors, we do have several MD, MBA, limited partners and advisors, but who haven't had a lot of venture experience and what they want to do is learn. And so we actually have a, a, a community on GHIN, Global Health Impact Network, um, which is a network that Gary has created in part to support the fund. And, um, and the community for the fund is a place where everyone can get education about ventures. So we post articles. We also post companies we're looking at so people can contribute to the due diligence if they want to. So there's a passive way to get involved or, or an active for them or passive where we'll reach out if we think that they would be appropriate. So this concept of physician keeps on coming up, obviously. Um, I wanna dig into that further because I've heard numerous times on advice from investors, whether they're angels or VCs, that the earlier a company can align with KOL's physicians and truly get that clinical feedback and not just design something coming from their head and thinking that it's going to work, like you said, with that anesthesiology room, um, the better. And so with a fund like GHIF, which let's just call it predominantly clinician focused or doctor clinician focused, aligning with you guys as investors, are they already naturally, and to your point about having that large physician network already, where you can bring them and say, what do you think about this? Is that also a huge added value that you guys bring right from the beginning to an early stage company? Yeah. I mean, it's a real strategic differentiator. The companies like it. I mean, they like it first. The first thing I think that hits a company when they talk to us is that we speak the same language. You know, a lot of times they're talking to investors 
And I mean, through no fault of their own, and there are some very sophisticated investors, but many of them don't really can't speak the language. You know, it's almost like a foreign language, you know, medicine. So they really like that. And we lead a lot of rounds. And as leaders of rounds, we end up talking to a lot of investors. And so we recently led a round into a company called Elucid, which does uh, looks at plaque, you know, determines the quality of plaque in arteries and using CTOGrams and artificial intelligence. And I spoke with just about every investor who followed into that round and talked to them about the clinician clinical you know perspective you know and I think I think at least it was very meaningful to those investors to get that perspective prior to making a commitment um, so yeah it really helps from the beginning it helps us decide who even to talk to who not to talk to um, you know every venture fund is going to have a funnel and they're gonna they want to see a thousand companies for every one they invest in so how do you filter through these things and having the doctors really helps and, and by the way, just to give a little plug, I, I hadn't had the chance to tell you this yet, but um, so actually I just helped Blake from Elucid hire oh. their head of bioimaging, or I should say image processing rather. So we just made that hire for Elucid. So we put a really great guy in there. So hopefully oh, it'll, it'll help put some good value into the company. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, so let's jump onto GHIF. I want to go through a little bit of a recipe list of questions just to kind of give some more further context and then some more open-ended questions. Um, so GHIF, fundamentally based out of San Francisco, is that where the... Yeah, so I'm in San, we're virtual, just like everybody else these days, but we're, we're uh, distributed. So I'm in San Francisco, Gary is in the East Bay, Walnut Creek, uh, Dave is in LA, uh, Bob is in LA and Tennessee, and Chris is in Philadelphia, or outside of Philadelphia and Lancaster. And so the fund, you, you've been with them about a year and a half, you said, but the fund itself is about how old? We're just going on our third year of the fund. So okay. we're, we're young. And the first fund was roughly 10 million, you said, or was yeah, it? Yeah, it's coming just a little south of 10 million, fully deployed, 10 companies in the portfolio. You know, Out of that first fund then, is it finished? Any more room in that fund or are you fully deployed and looking at fund two? No, there's a little room. We have a $10 million ceiling. Uh, we, you know, we'd like to close it pretty soon, um, but, but there's definitely room and we're... The plan is to, we're opening our institutional fund with the higher minimums. And then once that has a little traction and there's been a little air between fund one and the doctor's fund, fund 2B, we're calling it, uh, we're going to open that up. And um, with regards to minimum ticket size, maximum ticket size reserves after you make an initial investment, what does that look like? So that's a really great question. So in our first fund, uh, we were average ticket size was about a million dollars. Um, we didn't reserve money for a follow on investment because it wasn't large enough. So this, this gets in a really interesting sausage making of venture capital. So we had a few goals and we were trying to get into that center of the Venn diagram. We wanted to lead rounds or at least take a position in the round where we would be eligible for a board seat and for sure information rights. You have to have access to information from companies um, so that you know what's going on. That's part of my role as a fiduciary for my limited partners. We wanted to own enough of the company in the early round that um, we would have that influence. So roughly 10% of a company minimum, you know, in the investment. And, um, so, you know, in order to do that, and you, of course, want to have a diversified portfolio, 
right? The whole point of venture is that you're you're buying instead of doing angel one-off investing, you're you're buying into a diversified portfolio that's managed. Those are the two really important um, concepts that the venture adds over, um, you know, angel investing. So to be diversified, to take leads, to own a significant part of the company, and to um, I think that's it. Uh, you know, we're looking at basically million dollar checks in the early stage of healthcare. So to make it super simple, $10 million fund, hopefully getting into 10 companies. Yeah. So some of the companies we invested a little bit less, some a little bit more, but we ended up with 10 companies in the portfolio. We're, we're involved with, uh, we led eight rounds, six rounds. We're on eight different boards. A couple of our investments were a little bit smaller, so we're not on their boards, but um yeah. And, and so strategically, that's put us in a good place. And of course, the companies want us involved strategically because of the benefits of the network. Early stage companies um, have very little capital, right? And they have very small teams typically. So having access to the doctors can provide a lot of support that otherwise they would have to pay for. So it, like in their minds, it, there's quite a bit of value there as well. In terms of the technology or therapy focus of GHIF, if various technologies pitch to you, you have a implantable heart valve, a digital SaaS platform, a capital piece of imaging equipment and a wearable, are you investing in all of them or do you have a much more tight niche focused? So for the first fund, our thesis was investing at the uh, locus of digital uh, technology and um, healthcare. So if it's technological and healthcare related, we were interested. We didn't invest in pharma and we didn't invest in traditional devices, which you know, colloquially is like an orthopedic screw where obviously there's technology that goes into it, but there's no tech underlying the application of that. So we're interested in robotics and artificial intelligence and we're interested in telehealth and you know, telehealth platforms. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of where we were with the first fund. With the second fund, because it's larger, we would like to be a little broader. Um, and whether or not we end up getting into pharma or not is a matter of the specific opportunity and also a matter of the ultimate size of the fund because pharma is a slower uh, time to exit. It takes longer to get there and also it's more expensive. So in order to take that position in a company that we talked about, you have to be in there really early and that's a very long, that's a very long time to exit. So. Sometimes there are companies that have those, you know, um, metrics baked into them. And I think we would look at them, but for the most part, pharma is probably not going to be in a $20 million fund either, at least not a significant part of it. So I've been trying to get this question as concise as I can in my head and I can't. So I'm going to break it up into things and just toss them at you. And I know that, you know what I'm going to ask, and then we can just open up the questions on that. So the GHIF first fund right now, roughly 10 million, you have physicians, clinicians who invested into the fund and that ticket size, as you mentioned, was roughly a million dollars when you were to go and invest into 10 companies. A um, million dollars could be all taken by a large seed round, or I should say a typical seed round possibly, um, or it could be a, a contributor to possibly a series A of multiple millions. But you and I had talked earlier about this and I threw out this terminology, micro VC, right? So still piecing this together. When I think of the traditional VC funds that are 
tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars where you have pension funds and governments and sovereign entities, et cetera, investing into these funds that make them so large, universities. And then you have angel groups, which are individual uh, individuals, high net worth individuals coming together as a group that could either invest collectively or invest individualistically. What GHIF, that $10 million fund, it, it seems something in the middle, right? And I want to throw out that term once again, micro VC. And where does it, where does GHIF fall on the spectrum between an angel group on early stage and then traditional VC? Right. So that's a, an interesting question. And I'll preface that by saying that if what we hope happens happens, so uh, you know, with all with all due modesty, GIF one is the beginning of a family of funds, not not a destination in and of itself. We would like to create a very large venture footprint because we think we have something to offer. So uh, today, though, you have to know who you are and where you are, and we're we're a small fund. Um, one of the reasons we like to be involved in the early stage is because we feel that strategically our network adds a lot of value. So an example would be a, a pre-IPO company. For us, we would be money, but I'm not so sure we would add a lot of value, which is still, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But coming into the early stages where we can help them with clinical trial design, help them establish pilot studies or relationships with hospitals for IRB and clinical trials, find chief medical officers for them, that's powerful and it really helps the companies. So right now, at least the way we've structured it, we can just create a lot more value than, than just the value of our capital early on. And that's what we try to do. So we wanna be in the early stage. Um, so being a micro VC isn't so bad because we wouldn't want at this point to take full rounds in the series A, that's too much risk. Um, you know, we'd like to share it with other, you know, other venture funds that validate what we do. With seed rounds, we'll take a smaller position because taking 10 or 15% of the company a seed round is not a bigger ticket, right? So we'll go into the seed round, but we're not going to write necessarily a million dollars and take the whole round out. So why not? Just so I can learn from my own self, why wouldn't you do that in a seed round? Well, we could, but you know, you're not distributing risk is the, the thing, you know, and it's, it's, it's a really good signal when a company can raise money from more than one investor, you know, because if other investors have seen it and gone through it and done their due diligence and they're also investing, then that provides, I don't want to say cover, but validation that, you know, you've, you've looked at everything. Okay. So it's just about risk distribution, you know, and, and wanting to make sure that you've done what you can. You know, venture is all about risk and reward, right? And so in the early stage of healthcare, we're looking at a very high reward potential. None of the companies I look at should be able to return less than 20x on my investment based on our evaluations and protect, projections, right? Because one in 10 fail, I mean, one in 10 succeed, theoretically. And so that one really has to make up for all of the failures and show a good return, right? So if you do that math, you really need a 20 to 30X return in that one company. So first off, we don't even wanna to talk to companies that can't demonstrate that on, unless for some reason they've shown me that the risk is very minimal because you're looking at a, a ratio between risk and reward, right? Higher risk means higher reward or else the, you know, the math doesn't work. 
So I think that's really important. Um, now, again, remember that VC is a managed fund and sometimes management just means like managing a portfolio, like a mutual fund. And that's, that's management. But in our case, we're actually talking about being involved, being on the boards of companies, working with the companies to the extent that they want our help and that they need our help to help make them more successful, to bend their success curve favorably. So you pay for that. I mean, you have to pay management fees and you have to pay um, carried interest. So the management fees go to run the organization and take care of things like legal and accounting and salaries and you know infrastructure like subscriptions. And then uh, the carried interest is sort of is the way you know, it's like the piece of the action, you know, I do the work and then a piece of the profits, you know, come to us. And those are the only two income streams typically that the venture fund at its core can uh, charge. And an angel fund doesn't typically do that. So if you're an angel investor, you'll write a $15,000 check, a $50,000 check, whatever into a company, and you'll own that entire company. But that's not a diversified investment and it's not a managed investment. So do you, the $50,000 check writer, have any influence with the company that's just raised a million dollars? Maybe. But when I write a $500,000 check for that same company that's raised a million dollars, I'm taking half of their round and they kind of have to take my calls and make sure they provide me with updates and things like that. So it gives us that seat at the table. Again, we think that's valuable. So we think it's in their best interest. But it's also in the best interest of the investors, because if we have eyes on what's happening, at least we'll see the crash coming if it's coming, and hopefully we'll be able to help them avoid it and actually, you know, excel. So, you know, angel investing is just very different. You know, you get out there, you've got to have your own deal flow, you've got to see the companies, you've got to do your own due diligence and write your check. And it's great for people to do it. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's just, you know, it's like, trading your own stocks. You know, you really, if you want to do it well, you have to really do it. This lets us do it. It compensates us. So you lose a little bit as an investor, but hopefully you gain more significantly than you lose by virtue of the time and expertise we put into it. And then of course, big VC is big VC, but here's a problem with big VC is that to write a million dollar check for a billion dollar fund, it's literally not worth their time. They don't want to even have that conversation. So they want to come in later and in healthcare, this creates a great opportunity for people like us because we like to be in earlier. Even when we raise our larger funds, early is where we have impact. So I talk on a lot of panels, I'm at a lot of events. I see deals all the time and they're all early. I have eyes on that. I like to think that we're the tip of the spear. So we don't get the table scraps from the big boys. We're seeing the food before it gets put on the table. I think that's very powerful because we have the capacity to identify what we think are winners earlier than most companies can because of our, you know, basically we can provide product market validation, right? Um, so I think it's a really cool place to be. I mean, I'd like, I wish we had more capital to deploy because I see a lot of great companies that I think have terrific potential. But I don't compete with the big boys because they're not interested in, you know, being involved where I am. They, they want to be one or two rounds later. And then to summarize that and paint a picture or imagery. So angels come before you, then you, then different stage slash larger VCs. Um, 
to clarify for the audience too, because I've heard people say it, I've heard people not own it and then try to call it something else. What's the preference? Are you an early stage VC or do you like to be called a micro VC? And is there a place to be called a micro VC on that linear line? Like for example, if I'm an entrepreneur putting my strategy together and I know I'm early, um, okay, fine. Maybe I could talk to angel groups, but I really might want to have somebody on a VC side who can give more value just besides a check. Um, should I go to the micro VCs? And, and I'm probably too small for someone who only has a minimum ticket of 7 million if I'm only raising five on a series A. So is it an, a pride of ownership having a micro VC title or do you like to be called early stage and micro VC is like a taboo word? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd rather be called a macro VC, but I don't have, <laughs> I don't have enough money for that. Um, no, I think the answer to that is I understand it. And I, you know, I don't know your sense of the nomenclature is probably better than mine, but I always thought micro VC related to the amount of capital under management for the fund, uh, not the check size. And early stage VC reflects not the stage you are in raising money, but the stage of um, the companies that you like to invest in. So some people will be later stage VCs, some people will be pre-IPO VCs, right? And they come in at different different uh, points on a company's journey towards their exit. And the early stage is really coming in early, right? And then their seed, pre-seed, you know, not sometimes even pre-seed, right? You don't even have intellectual property. I like to see intellectual property. I like to see the formation of a company and commitments from the investor, from the uh, entrepreneurs to make this happen. I like to see that they have skin in the game, investment and time. Um, ideally, they brought in money already outside of their, you know, their their own money because again, it's all very validating their their positive market signals. But then that's when we jump in. And going back to the technologies that you focused on and the economics behind that. So a lot of the technology that you mentioned that you were interested or assessed or invested in, does it have a data play? Is that uh, like a requirement? Is that something that you would associate or just happen to be like that? And the reason why I ask that is um, uh, being a micro VC, unless if we run with that terminology, with the financial restrictions though you wish you could be a macro VC and have more capital to deploy, if you are limited and you do have to have that return on your investment in X amount of years, um, does it basically keep it prohibitive for you to in, jump into a, a heart valve series A or something that's going to take a IDE trial to get through in seven years just to even hit regulatory uh, approval? Is that why possibly you stick more towards the data plays and things that are 510k, possibly de novo, maybe even class one? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it has to do with timing and, you know, when we, when we jump into the pool, so they're, they're, um, they can be a little bit later in terms of their growth, but still require that early capital. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why we were talking earlier about pharma and, and just as a matter of, you know, practical matter, it's tough to get involved early in pharma and expect a return within 10 years when your fund is supposed to close. So, so, I mean, again, it's possible, but it's just a harder, it's a harder um, thing to rely on. Data, when I, when I think about a data play, like we've invested in artificial intelligence companies like Elucid, and in my mind, that data is very critical to the work that they're doing. So I definitely think data is really important. You know, what we're looking for is ways that technology has made maybe what we used to do better, faster, cheaper, more efficient, 
more scalable, whatever, right? And data is definitely a part of that. But when I hear people talk about data, so now I'm going to be contrarian. I hear people say that we're building a company and it'll be a data company and we're going to sell the data. It's like, well, what are you doing? And really what they're doing is they're doing something else and that something else will ultimately throw off data and that data will ultimately potentially have value. But instead of being the company that's doing the thing that they're doing, they start positioning themselves as a data company. And as a contrarian, that always bothers me because the goal is the thing and not the data. And it's true that maybe one day that data could be very valuable, but I'm not aware of a lot of examples where companies in the early stages have amassed that much data that they could create revenue streams from that data that would be material. And so I find that to be it's almost when people start talking about data, it's, they might as well be talking about, you know, blockchain or cannabis or something like they just, they're, they're like dropping buzzwords, but there's no real economic underpinning to the story. It's just more lofty ideas. And I, I, so it turns me off. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I, I wanted to, to conclude the, the, the dialogue, the discussion that we're having with, um, this concept of good money versus bad money and what makes a good board member if you are gonna take on that seat. And we've hit on that in various ways throughout the conversation, but if you are speaking to the entrepreneur today and it's that classic entrepreneur that may or may not have a great technology, and let's just assume they have a great technology, but they're desperado for cash. They need cash to be able to hire their next best friend that they worked at the, the previous position they were in, whatever it may be to have at least some traction to get going. And someone has a check in front of them and they, they aren't savvy enough to know that, yes, it's money. Yes, they need it. So they take it, but they don't know the ramifications of what bad money could be or what really taking a good board member should look like. Just wrap up the conclusion for an early stage entrepreneur on what that bad money versus good money and a good board member that should come along with that looks like and feels like. Okay, I'll try. Um, that's a tough question. So I think definitely, you know, at, at the most obvious levels on the periphery, you want to take money legally and you don't want to take it from people that are going to break your legs if you lose your money, right? You, but more importantly, let, well, actually, let's, 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 be grammarians for a moment and say that you're not taking money from anyone. They're investing their money in you and becoming a partner. And I think that's a really, you know, maybe it's like nitpicky, but there's something really important about the distinction because they're investing in you and becoming your partner. You're selling a part of your company to them. You're not just taking their money. And one of the reasons people like angels, for instance, better than VCs is because angels give them small amounts of money. Therefore, or you know, invest small amounts of money. Therefore, individually, the angel has no sort of juice at the board level or you know, with governance. But when I write a million dollar check and I'm representing a consortium of my limited partners, but I write a million dollar check, that's a million dollars. And as I said, you, you really should take my calls for a million dollars and you really should have to listen to me a little bit and not, not so much that I'm gonna come in and stomp up and down and make you do what I want to do. I'm obviously voting for you and your success, but you are inviting, you know, the gorilla into the room a little bit. And some people don't want that. So I would say to people that don't want that, find another way to get your capital, you know, but, but the truth is that a venture fund with experience and contacts can provide quite a bit of help and cover, quite frankly. And so you should 
work with people ideally who have experience in your space in some fashion, who can add strategic value, uh, whether that's introductions to vendors or introductions to, you know, in our case, hospitals, or whether it's, you know, to strategics, people that can help you who've walked the walk before, um, because you can benefit from their experience and they're not going to charge you for it, right? There's a huge value add. When you vet people, when they're difficult, I mean, honestly, it's red flags too. When I talk to entrepreneurs, you know, if you don't show up for your phone call, if you're rude, if you're really defensive, when I give you feedback, those might mean nothing, but they're the only information you have before you make a decision. And so to me, they're red flags, they're warning signs that things could go bad. And it's rare that you've had an experience where things blew up and you look backwards and you think, I didn't see that coming. You always saw it coming, right? And you chose to ignore it. So you start to pay attention to the red flags because you've got, you don't have a better gauge on what's going to make things go well. Um, you know, investing and that relationship between an investor and an investee is like a date. Everybody gets dressed up. You go to a nice restaurant, you have a good meal, you order a nice bottle of wine. It's hard not to like that. Right. I mean, it's hard for that to go wrong. If that goes wrong, you have a really big problem. Right. But but investing is more like being married where the bills have to get paid and you got to bring on new people and you got to do this and you have to do that. And things don't always work out the way you want it to. And so there's more tension. You know, you always you know, because companies are always growing, they're never going to have enough to do what they want to do because they're literally always growing. So there's always these tensions. And so you want to be able to work with people. You want to create not a family, but you want to create a working body that, that functions in a way that, that will get you to your goals. And so if you already get bad vibe from an investor, just walk away. The money's not worth it. Find another investor. Um, you know, no check is worth the headache that having somebody, you know, torture you, torment you you know, afterwards is work. That was the point I was looking for. First and foremost, you answered it perfectly. And also the point that I would love to end on. So I want to say thank you so much, Dr. Oren Aloni-Charas for joining us here. This is MedTech Money, where we demystify raising capital. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.